We're going to be reading two different passages, one from Judges, uh, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, and Exodus, chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. Starting with Judges, uh, the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he declared, because this nation has violated my covenant that I made with their ancestors and disobeyed me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I did this to test Israel and to see whether or not they would keep the Lord's way by walking in it, as their ancestors had. The Lord left these nations and did not drive them out immediately. He did not hand them over to Moses. And then from the Lord's earlier word to Moses and possibly the assembly of Israel in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity to the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Will you please pray with me? Lord, when confronted by the truth about your nature and your qualities, the only rational response is the same as Moses's, to immediately kneel low and worship. We praise you for your perfect combination of grace and truth. Grace to forgive our iniquities, rebellion, and sin, and truth to provide perfect justice for the awful penalty of sin, even to the point of not withholding your precious son to pay for the sins of the world. Lord, May we learn from Israel and not be an obstinate and stiff-necked people with short memories. Help us to remember your faithfulness and be quick to repent. Bless Pastor Ryan as he preaches. Holy Spirit, give power to his words, and may we all leave here changed more into the image of your Son. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> How forgiving of a person are you? How long do you tend to hold that grudge when slighted? No elbowing of your spouse. <laughs> or even better, how do you demonstrate forgiveness? Are you a hard line one time and they are done? They broke your trust and therefore it's over for forever. Maybe two times you can put up with, but three strikes and they are out. They are done. I think the thing about forgiveness is that we often like to see it in others, like to see it demonstrated by others even, but rarely want to have to do it ourselves. It's hard. Who wants to be hurt in some way and then have to forgive that person? Can't we just go our separate ways? We've started a new series walking through the book of Judges a few weeks back as we see Israel's repeated covenant breaking and God's repeated covenant faithfulness. And so this week we have a large section. And it's a heavy section. Really, this entire book is heavy. But this section covers the rest of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3. If you have your Bible open, you can actually look at some of the headings that it provides for you. They aren't inspired in and of themselves, but they will give you an idea of what is taking place. So in chapter 2, we see the death of Joshua. And as Jeff said last week, the subsequent generations were ignorant to the things of God. 
And then we see really in that chapter two how it's serving as a second introduction. It's just basically laying the groundwork, the pattern of what we're going to see in the rest of the book. And then in chapter three, we are introduced to our first few judges, and we're going to focus mainly on Othniel and Ehud. We get a foretaste of what the rest of the book is going to be like. So our main point, if you're taking notes, there's an outline provided for you in your bulletin, is that God is glorified in salvation through judgment. God is glorified in salvation through judgment. He is glorified in salvation. We see that in Scripture. He is glorified in judgment. We see that as well in Scripture. And He is glorified in salvation through judgment. Our title this morning is, They Forgot the Lord Their God. All of what comes and all of what we'll read in this book stems from those words. All of sin, all of idolatry, all of wickedness and evil stems from those words. They forgot him. May it never be so of us. Let's pray. Father, help us as your gathered church here this morning to sit under your word. And would you apply it to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you encourage us where we need it? Convict us where we need it as well. It's in your son's holy name we pray. Amen. I want us to see four things, four themes from this text this morning. Our four themes are this. First, relentless apostasy. Second, deserved judgment. Third, amazing grace. And then fourth, divine deliverance. If you're taking notes, these will come back up on the screen for you, I promise. First is relentless apostasy. Look at what we see in this passage. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshiped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They angered the Lord, for they abandoned him and worshiped Baal and the Ashtaroths. 17, instead they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. 19, whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their ancestors, following other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them. They did not turn from their evil practices and their obstinate ways. Chapter 3, verse 6, the Israelites took their daughters as wives for themselves, gave their own daughters to their sons, and worshiped their gods. Verse 7, the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God and worshiped the Baals and the Asherahs. Verse 12, the Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight, time and time again. We hear this type of language throughout our section and the entire book of Judges. Israel repeatedly gives themselves over to the worship of other gods. They commit spiritual adultery. They forsake Yahweh for another. Notice the language there. They abandon God. They prostitute themselves out for other gods. They worshiped them. They did evil. They are marked by relentless apostasy. And think of what God had done for them. We even read a little bit of it from the Exodus and to the victories and battles and bringing them into the promised land. God was working time and time again to save his people. And when the going gets tough, they look elsewhere. They play the role of the harlot and seek out another to give their devotion to. The beginning books of the Old Testament and the prophets are clear that God is the spiritual husband of his people. He saves them. He redeems them. He leads them. And ultimately, they are ungrateful. They have short memories. They are unfaithful. See, since the promise given to Abraham many years before, God's people were looking forward to the promised land. 
looking forward to experiencing that, looking forward to a rest that was to signify something greater that you and I now experience in Jesus Christ. And God leads them into the promised land, but they have to drive out the inhabitants. That's the requirement. If they continue to follow after him, he will be with them. He will help them drive them out. They have to drive out these inhabitants. And as Jeff said last week, the focus in driving out the inhabitants isn't on the ethnicity in and of itself, but the worship of another God tied to that ethnicity. Israel cannot be syncretistic. They cannot allow other religions to mix into their faith as well. Our God is a jealous God, an all-consuming fire, the one true God. The worship of another God, a created God, an idol is an affront to his holiness his majesty, and his sovereignty. Like the spouse that gets bored, married to their current spouse, and looks for a cheap and quick thrill elsewhere, so God's people here do the same. They forget their first love and go after something else. Rather than Israel being a light to the nations, the darkness of the nations has infiltrated Israel as Israel has become Canaanized. There is a darkness to what is happening here and really happening in this book that we cannot simply overlook. Repeated forsaking of God, repeated breaking of the covenant, repeated and relentless apostasy as they abandon Yahweh. But the truth that we know and we see throughout scriptures is that God will not abide the worship of another. If you are an unbeliever here this morning, we welcome you. We are glad that you are here. There's no better place actually for you to be than in here hearing the good news of Christ. We will get to that. We collectively have uh, come in here because we are a people who have been saved by the Lord Jesus. We have been saved from our sin and the consequences of it, separation from God and eternity in hell. So this apostasy I'm talking about, though, implies a turning away from someone you have in some way expressed allegiance to. So maybe you have never truly known this God I'm talking about. You see... The good news and what we see in scripture is that you were created to know this God. You were created to be in fellowship with him. You were created to know him and have a loving relationship with him. You were created as well in his image and therefore your life has worth and value and honor because of that. But sin upends all of it. It warps all of it. Apart from the grace of God, we are blinded to the things of God. And then through our first parents, Adam and Eve, we both inherit a sinful nature and we willingly disobey God ourselves. In our sinful hearts, God's word tells us we suppress the truth of God. We shove it down and we do not like that God is in authority over us. That is the natural disposition of our hearts. So friend, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know salvation through him, that is true of you right now. You are in rebellion to God. You are in rebellion to him. Your biggest problem in life is not the lack of money in your bank account, the frustration that you have with work, or the difficulties even in your marriage, all problems to be sure. Your biggest problem in life is that you have a God problem. You can blind yourself to it for so long, but eventually that will run out too. You can medicate with drugs or alcohol. You can work that much harder to climb that ladder of success. You can resolve to date your spouse twice a week for the next year. You can do good works until you exhaust yourself, but in the end, you still have a God problem. So my friend, be patient with me. But there is good news coming, but before you hear that good news, you must first wrestle with the reality of your greatest problem in life, and that is your sin before a holy God. 
To my fellow saints here at Christ Community, those who have professed faith in Christ, let us learn from their relentless apostasy. We praise God that he saves us and he keeps us in the faith, but do not be blind to the effects of the flesh and this time in between before we go on into eternity. Do not be blind to the effects of the world in our lives. Do not be blind to where you are tempted to turn to another, whether it be money or comfort or that promotion or getting married or something else. When things are hard, do you run to God or do you run to something or someone else? Let us not kid ourselves that we can have one foot following Christ and the other foot firmly planted in this world, flirting with sin and temptation. That only leads to both feet being in the world and we turn away from Christ. May God, through his Holy Spirit, show us all where we are prone to wandering, and may the Holy Spirit convict us where we need it. In light of this relentless apostasy, though, God is fed up. Yahweh is fed up, which brings us to our second point, deserved judgment. A God that is perfectly holy and righteous cannot let sin go unpunished, for he would not be perfectly just. A people that have repeatedly broken the covenant deserved to be judged. Look with me at these verses, chapter two, verses 14 to 15. The Lord's anger burned against Israel and he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them and they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them just as he had promised and sworn to them. So they suffered greatly. Verses 20 to 23, the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he declared, because this nation has violated my covenant that I made with their ancestors and disobeyed me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I did this to test Israel and to see whether or not they would keep the Lord's way by walking in it as their ancestors had. The Lord left these nations and did not drive them out immediately. He did not hand them over to Joshua. Chapter three, verse eight, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And he sold them to King Kushan Rishathaim of Aram Naharaim, and the Israelites served him eight years. 12b, he, that's the Lord, gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. I said before that Yahweh is a jealous God. The God that we serve does not abide the worship of another. And our main point this morning is that God is glorified in salvation through judgment. And here we will see God's judgment. The God who judges the living and the dead has judged Israel for their repeated apostasy. And it is not a pretty thing. Notice once more the the language here. God's anger burns against them in verses 14 and 20 of chapter 2 and again in 3.8. We do not serve a God who is so transcendent, so up high as to not be imminent, as to not care about the things in his creation. He is both. He is the God who simultaneously rules over all things and also cares for his people like no other. And Yahweh's anger here shows his jealousy of his people. It shows his faithfulness to his word and to the covenant. Our God cares. And he cares so much as to not let sin go unpunished. Friends, the lie that love allows all things is truly just that. It is a lie. Jealousy is a vital part of love. Imagine a husband has the sad but true evidence that his wife has had an affair with another man. This isn't just a rumor. It's been validated. The husband has been faithful to his wife. He's loved her dearly. He sought to lead her well. He has been tender. He's been devoted to his wife. And then he learns of the affair and he simply says, well, you win some and you lose some. 
such is life. What would you think of that man? You would think that he doesn't really love or care for his wife all that much at all. I would think that he's a weak and passive man and a passive leader. If he really loved his wife, he would be stirred by a vast array of emotions, anger definitely included in there. If there was true love there, he should be aghast and upset and jealous and livid. And such is the case with God and his people. His jealousy stirs at their apostasy. He shows us in his judgment his love for his people. We know that God is infinite and perfect, and that informs us both about his love and his wrath. He demonstrates them perfectly. And here in this judgment, we see his wrath as he delivers Israel over to foreign nations that conquer and subject them. King Kushan Rishathaim in verse 8, his name means doubly wicked. Israel wants to go serve false gods, then they will be put under sinful and wicked leadership. Same thing as we see in Moab as well. God, though, is the one making history here. That's what we have to understand. He is orchestrating the events. He is the rightful judge and the one giving them over. These foreign nations might think that they are conquering Israel in their own might, but here in Scripture, it is clear that it is Yahweh giving them over. This is the judgment of God. As the writer of Hebrews tells his readers, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The psalmist can say, who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. We see this as well when we, read, when we read Isaiah and Jeremiah as foreign nations are raised up by God to judge God's people, to judge Israel, and then God judges those very foreign nations that he raised up. Is that your understanding of God? Do you have a big enough God that he does that? Because that's what we see in Scripture. It is as Psalm 2 says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. God raises up nations for his purposes. And as a brief aside, let me say something in light of that about our nation. I do not personally understand America to be in covenant relationship with God like Israel was. I understand the new covenant to be what the covenant with Israel was both pointing forward to and foreshadowing, pointing forward to something greater that you and I now experience in Christ. But in light of me talking about the judgment of God and God using nations, how he sees fit, let me say this. God's judgment is a real thing. Nations come and go. If you study history, you see that, and our nation is still relatively young, but his church will last forever. A nation, though, that has wicked rulers and celebrates wicked things will be judged. A nation that sacrifices children on the altar of comfort and convenience and calls it health care will be judged. A nation that upends the created order and calls it finding your true self will be judged. A nation where pornography is rampant and everything has to be sexualized will be judged. And the list goes on. So in light of us being here right now in 2023, sovereignly appointed to live here, as Acts 17 tells us, we as God's ambassadors have work to do. We have a lot of work to do. And I don't want you to discount your part in it. Seeing all the things that are happening out there and feeling hopeless. You see, we tend to label certain things in life as small things, but they are actually vitally important things. They are in many respects what God commands us to do like having a marriage that honors the Lord and is a witness to the world, like raising and discipling the children in your home to know the truth of God and his word, 
like evangelizing coworkers and neighbors and telling them of the good news of Christ and what he has done for you, like fulfilling the great commission by teaching people, all people, all that Christ commanded, like working towards biblical justice taking place and so on and so forth. God calls us all in different ways to see his kingdom advance. So don't discount what he has called you to do in the here and now and think it is small in light of the problems in our nation. That's not true in the kingdom of God. God uses what the world thinks is weak and foolish to accomplish amazing things for him so that his wisdom and his glory might be put on display. So our hope for this nation, ultimately, and hear me say ultimately, is not found in the halls of Washington. Although there are serious things to be mindful of that are happening there, and your allegiance to Christ informs all the decisions you make, including how you vote. Politics is always informed by your faith in Christ. Divorcing the two is impossible. So no, our hope is not ultimately in Washington. It is solidly found in Jesus Christ. And so friends, in a time and in a nation that is in many ways resembling the book of Judges, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, recognize that day by day faithfulness, where God has you in the here and now, is advancing the kingdom of God. And take seriously that we are to be a part of seeing that kingdom advance here through his local church. And pray. My goodness, do we ever need to pray. In our homes and in the church. In light of 1 Timothy 2, pray that our leaders and those in authority, authority would repent of their wickedness and come to faith. Don't simply look to those in authority for your hope, though. Be about God's kingdom work now. Back to point number two. Deserved judgment. God is perfectly just in his wrath. Unlike the husband not caring about the affair, his jealousy burns because of his love for his people. God is perfectly just in his wrath. And make no mistake, sin will be judged. Sure, you might not feel the, the uh, effects of it right now. You might think that you are hiding it well. I promise you, it will be found out and it will be judged. If you are not found in Christ on that day, if you are relying on something other than Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross, you will feel the full weight of God's wrath in eternity. And God's word tells us that sin is a tyrant. Sin is not something or simply something that you do or you do not do or something you say or you do not say. It's not less than that, but in scripture it's presented as more than that. It is a power that apart from God's saving grace, it holds you in its grip. And Romans 3.9 tells us that all are under sin. All are under the power of it apart from that grace. So until we come to see the power of sin... We will not appreciate the glorious grace of God shown to us through Christ. We will keep thinking that salvation or being a Christian just means coming to church and playing dress up and being a nice person or worse, performing some sort of religious charade, which has to be exhausting. None of that is Christianity. Instead, it means that we have been delivered from the power of sin and death because our sin was so bad that God had to send his one and only son to come and die for it. Think back to the beginning of the gospel of Matthew, to the announcement that the angel gives of the coming Messiah. The angel said, you shall call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That is a profound statement. A statement that has the full wrath of God towards sin as we see in the cross and the full love of God towards his people behind it. He will save them from their sins and he did. So Israel had a lesson to learn. 
In plain terms, they will be married to Yahweh or married to the gods of the nations, and the same is true for us today. Do you see how the metaphor has come over into the new covenant? The church is purposefully called the bride of Christ. The new covenant spells this out. Therefore, we will be married to Christ or we will be married to the gods of this world. There is no neutral ground. This brings us to our third point. In the midst of that darkness, in the midst of this apostasy, in the midst of the judgment that comes, there's a light that shines forth, a shocking truth in this text, amazing grace. Amazing grace. I've just extrapolated out a small bit on the judgment and wrath of God, and there's much more to say, but I do not want us to gloss over what is to come, the amazing statements we're about to see. You saw all about Israel's apostasy, that they turn away from God, and we see God's rightful judgment, but notice this amazing grace. Look at the sequence. Verse 14a, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now here in verse 15, we would expect it to say Israel repented and turned from Baal and cried out to Yahweh. None of that. Verse 16, Lord's anger is burning in verse 14. Verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders. What an amazing statement that is. Sometimes we can gloss over it. It's quick. Verse 16 16 introduces God's grace like a punch. This is the miracle of scripture, that the God who rightly punishes us also stoops to save us. He owes us nothing and gives us everything. He has pity on the sinner, compassion on them as well. Look at verse 18. The Lord was moved to pity when they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Reminds us of the covenant character of our God that Justin read for us in scripture reading. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Notice as well with this grace with our first two judges in chapter three, if you look ahead, verse nine, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, so the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz. Further in chapter three, verse 15, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he raised up Ehud, son of Gera. This is amazing grace. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve it at all. I asked you at the beginning of this sermon, how forgiving of a person are you? How many strikes will you allow? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Is that you? Well, then what does that make God here? Is God the fool? Why does he keep delivering them? It's the covenant character that we read in Exodus 34. The Lord, Yahweh, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He is faithful to those he loves, to his people, no matter what. He has bestowed his loving kindness on a people that did not and do not deserve it. He keeps the covenant no matter what. He is filled with more mercy and compassion than you and I could ever comprehend. And notice the language here in verse 18. He is moved to pity when the Israelites groaned under captivity. Verses 9 and 15 as well. The Israelites cried out to the Lord. Some commentators see this as implying repentance, but as of now, I I don't really see that. I think they're groaning from their misery. I think they're crying out to whatever God will deliver them, Baal, Eshtroth, Yahweh, and who is it that's moved to compassion? The one true God. They are crying out for help, crying out for divine aid, and God condescends towards his people once more despite their lack of repentance, and he gives it to them. That is grace. He comes to us, when we don't deserve it. Why? Because he's the covenant-keeping God. 
These words of groaning and crying out are the same words used back in Exodus 2 when Israel was under bondage to Egypt and they groaned and cried out. And so the astute Israelite reading this or hearing this would pick up on this. The same God that delivered their ancestors a few hundred years before in the Exodus is the same covenant-keeping God that keeps delivering them now. To the unbeliever earlier, I left you hanging under the wrath and judgment of God that you are in rebellion to him and deserve his rightful punishment. But this is the amazing grace that we who follow the Lord Jesus Christ have experienced, that we of all people, sinful and wicked and loving ourselves more than we love God, have been lavished with his compassion, his mercy, and his grace. In Christ, the perfect sacrifice, his grace is boundless and infinite to you, but it is only found in Jesus Christ. That judgment that you and I deserve is swallowed up in him. You must be found in him on that day or you have no hope. The grace, that grace is held out to you, my friend, and is only through the deliverance provided in Christ. Which brings us to our last point, divine deliverance. Divine deliverance. In verse 16, we saw that the Lord raised up judges, chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, we have our first two interactions with the judges. And first is Othniel. You can look through the text there. Not a ton is said, but there are clear implications. He is the first. He is the prototype. He models what a faithful judge should look like. He's the nephew of Caleb as well. We're introduced to him back in chapter 1, verse 13, as a brave warrior who captures Kiroth Sefer. And here in chapter 3... He is who the Lord raises up to deliver his people. The significant thing about Othniel, though, is that he is of the tribe of Judah. He's pointing forward to the Davidic king to come and even further to Jesus Christ, the king who will come. So he foreshadows those kings. Nothing negative is presented about him. The spirit of the Lord is upon him and he does his work admirably. And then there's Ehud. After reading about the plainness of Othniel, this is a shock in a way, if you're familiar with the story. Ehud, the left-handed Benjaminite. Well, I want to make a joke about those of you who are left-handed being sinners in the hands of an angry God. Nonetheless, there are different theories about him being left-handed, that warriors back then would bind their right hand so they could learn with their left hand. The Bible says he's left-handed. We're going to leave it at that, okay? But let me summarize this story for you. It could easily be made into a movie. Ehud... They are con- Israel's conquered by Moab, and so Ehud goes with, uh, goes with other people, and they have to bring tribute to the king. If you're conquered by a foreign nation, you got to bring tribute. And so he's bringing some agricultural tribute. He goes with the tribute. All the while, he has a plan. He has a sword, about 18 inches long that he's made, and he strapped it secretly to his thigh. You see, for almost all warriors back then, they would have been right-handed. And so the king's guards would have been most likely checking where a right-handed man would have his sword stowed away. So he goes and he brings the tribute and then he leaves with everybody and they travel a bit with his attendants and then he sends them on and he's gonna go back. So he goes back and he announces to the king of Moab, king, I have a message for you. And not just any message, but a message from God for you. Now, ancient Near Eastern kings always wanted to hear from the gods. They wanted information on what to do or who was going to attack them. So the king sends everyone out. This is for his ears only. Now, two things to note. Let me pause the movie here. The king of Moab's name is Eglon, and it means calf. It means cow, calf, okay? And two, there's your first thing. Second thing, he is described in this text as very fat. 
Those are the words. You can read it for yourself. Now, typically some roundness in the ancient Near East signified wealth and health, but here it is very fat. It is sloth. Israel finds themselves ruled by a glutton. Sin begets sin and apostasy begets enslavement to a ruler who doesn't look the part of a king at all. So remember those two things. One, calf. Two, very fat. Hint, the fattened calf is about to be sacrificed. Now, back to the movie. Ehud announces for you, I have a message from God for you, O king. To which the very fat king, everybody is out, begins to stand to hear it. And as Ehud is climbing the steps, he pulls out the sword and into the belly of the fattened calf it goes. So much so, the sword is completely lost in his fat and there's probably no hilt on the sword and Eglon's bowels empty themselves. So much for Judges being a nice book, right? But the king of Moab is now the slaughtered calf of Israel. Irony upon irony here. The ancient Jew would be hearing this story and laughing. I highly recommend you read it for your devotional one morning. But as Jeff said last week, this book is brutal. It describes reality. It doesn't sugarcoat things. It doesn't condone everything it describes, but it describes it truthfully. So Ehud delivers the people. Eglon, the fattened calf, is slaughtered. What in the world do we do with this? How do we think about this deliverance? Three things. First, we must see that God is the hero. That's the name of our series, and it's the truth that we see in this. Yahweh raised up this Savior. The emphasis is on God throughout. Details aside for the moment, he brings deliverance to his people, and he uses these means to do so. His sovereignty knows no bounds. He uses the good things in life and the bad things alike. Israel would have not have been ashamed of this story, but would have seen the irony in it and actually enjoyed it. Further, the large man, Eglon, probably had a large kingdom, and it's implying that as well. So the description is implying that, yet it is God who brings judgment in the most embarrassing of ways. God is the hero. Second, God uses humor and irony to awaken his people. If you've been a Christian for some time, you surely have come to see this. God uses humor to stir us up. God does have a sense of humor and he reminds us of it throughout our lives. Israel has had sorrow. They have experienced rightful judgment. Yet in the midst of that judgment, God brings a brief ray of light, a brief moment of laughter. There is deliverance and it's in an unlikely way. Those who were crying out to be saved received this deliverance and even some laughter at how it comes about. But third, don't miss the lesson. The way that the inspired author of scripture here points out the irony and the satire in this account should not dull Israel or us into the ridicule that he is casting on them. The slob of Moab was ruling them. They exchanged God for that. Yes, God brought deliverance, but why did he have to bring that deliverance in the first place? Don't miss the greater lesson here. When you exchange God for something else, you will come to worship that something else. You will be ruled by it, and very often it will be disgusting. That's the insidious nature of sin. So let me close with this. Judges shows us that God enters into the chaos of life, the chaos of sin to bring about deliverance. He is not a God who is stuck up in his ivory tower. He is not just the big man upstairs afraid to get his white gloved hands dirty. No, he's a God who stoops into the muck and saves sinners. 
We see this in the incarnation, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on a human nature and became a servant, a servant that would eventually die for his people. He enters into the chaos. So you might be here and dealing with a whole host of issues, messed up family, emotional trauma, currently experiencing grief or sorrow, spouse or kid frustrations, or maybe you're battling temptation and you are feeling constantly overwhelmed by it. Life seems like an absolute mess. It is chaos. But the glory of this text and the entirety of scripture is that God does not leave us to ourselves. He does not hold back waiting for you to clean yourself up and come to him, whether you're comfortable or not. God delights in saving a people unto himself. He comes to you in your mess. To be sure, he allows weeping to endure for the night. There are immensely difficult things and seasons that we go through that take lots of time, but joy comes in the morning. He brings about salvation through judgment. Judges is a messy book that looks forward to and points forward to the true judge, the one who judges and saves completely and finally, Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're going to take communion together as a local church. This is a time when we remember the Lord Jesus Christ, both his life and his sacrifice, that he was sacrificed for us. We reflect on where we fall short and we repent of the sin that so easily entangles us. But we don't just stay on our sin. We look at what happened after the cross and we think of the resurrection and the finality of that. And we praise God that his grace through Christ has forgiven us completely. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, a believer in him alone for your, your, for your salvation, this practice, this time of remembrance is not for you. We are glad that you are here. We would love to explain the significance of it further after the service, but we respectfully ask that you let the bread and the juice pass you by. This is a time for you, though, to reflect on where your eternal hope is. I've been telling you much about the wrath and the judgment of God, but also I hope you see his grace and his mercy and his compassion that is infinite towards you in Jesus Christ alone. God saves sinners. Think about that truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the book of Judges. Thank you that the reality of sin is not hid from us, but that we can come to you knowing that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And you stoop low to save us. God, thank you that you have sent Jesus Christ to do that very task, that very mission. Thank you for the saints in here who know that and recognize them that, that about themselves and have placed their faith and their hope and their trust in you alone. But Father, for the one who does not know you, we pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would convict them to open their blind eyes and unstop their deaf ears that they might understand the grace of God in Christ towards them. We understand salvation to be from you and you alone, just like we see here in the book of Judges, that deliverance comes from you and you alone, and that has to be true in this case as well. So God, help us to worship you in light of this passage, that you are the God who saves a sinful people. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen. Amen.